Let's pray and we'll get into this. Father, we've, uh, we've sung to you. We've prayed to you. And now we ask you again to come in your kindness and in your compassion and teach us. And we desperately need that. We need food. We need Jesus. We need to be freshly reminded of your mercy. We need to be shaken out of our sleepy places and out of our dark places. And so we pause because you're alive and because you're here and because you are love. And you can do something about our condition and you are. And so we would ask tonight, we would just pause and even remind ourselves that we need you now. So speak to us, Lord, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, last week uh, we looked at the first few verses uh, of Jonah and we were talking about editorial control and this whole idea of when I see God as a more brilliant and beautiful author, I will give over editing rights to my story and to my life to him. You remember PL Travers, the author of Mary Poppins. It wasn't until she was convinced that Walt Disney could breathe life into this kind of dull and lifeless story of Mary Poppins that she'd written. It was only then after years of distancing herself from Disney and his requests to bring Mary Poppins to life, it was only after years of that tug of war that she was finally persuaded that this man can do something to this story that I have never been able to do. Contrary to my fears, he will not ruin it. He's not killing Mary Poppins. He's resurrecting her in a sense. And up until that point, that whole story we talked about last week was, was her suspecting him And just this perpetual tug of war. I get final say. I have veto power over my life and my story. And I'm not on board with your plans of what you want to do with my characters. And so I'm going to take my story and run away. And a lot of us are are at varying places of that. Maybe a little bit of a tug of war of God or a slow persuasion that he really is good. That he really, he alone is not after ruining our story or hurting us but in saving us and recreating us and redeeming us. And so we're in a little bit of a tug of war uh, with him. And that's where Jonah is too. Jonah could not conceive of how the plan to go to Nineveh and preach repentance would do anything good in his life. He could not wrap his head around how anything positive could come out of this for him or for his people in Israel. He wasn't on board with the plan and so he ran away from it. And the same instinct is in all of us as well, right? We've talked about this the past two weeks. This is why we distance ourselves from God. We also said repeatedly, this is where the story could have ended. It would have been fair enough if there's a period at the end of Jonah running and the storm pursuing him and the the ship sinking. It could have ended there. Our stories could end with our running, with our distancing, with our refusal to yield lives that God created and sustains to yield them to him in loving trust. It could end there. But God insists on continuing the story. There is no period after Jonah's worst day alive, his biggest mistake, his botched moment, his whiff at the plate. God writes the next chapter. The Lord hurls this great storm to chase this man who is running from God. And that's what we talked about last week, these mercy storms that God will send to track us down and to stop us in our tracks and to thwart our escape and to thwart our attempts to keep God at a comfortable distance 
where we maintain full autonomy and control of our lives. And yet he pursues us through these storms. Now, I wanted to say this because I've been thinking about this the past week. Some of you are really resonating with, with Jonah's life. His biography is like your biography. The mercy storms that you might be experiencing, whether you're a Christian or you would not own that label. You don't even say you're religious, but you're here and you're like, is God doing this to me? You might be resonating with this like category five mercy storm. This intense kind of scary life seems to be falling apart. Nothing I'm trying is working. You might resonate with that. A lot of you might feel more like Athens of 2018 and 2019, where it rains almost every day. And it's a low key mercy storm. Giant things in your life aren't necessarily kind of falling apart, but it seems like there's just a rock in your shoe in every area of your life. And it's, it's, it's God has catalyzed a conversation between you and him. What are you doing, Lord? And maybe that's your access point to Jonah's biography. It might not be as intense for you right now, but God is pursuing you and he's shaking up, shaking up your life in some places to actually expose the running instinct in our hearts and to lovingly draw us back, whether it is severe mercy or low-key mercy. He's pursuing us. And I think either way, whether it's the intense hurricane or the, the it rains every day and it ruins all my plans, uh, it still feels hard. Joe Novenson is a pastor in Lookout Mountain. Uh, he has got this famous quip. He says that change or this experience of grace chasing you or pursuing you, it hurts like heaven, which he says seems to hurt a lot more than hurting like hell. Because heaven insists that you change and hell doesn't really care if you ever change. But these mercy storms being caught in these mercy storms feels it, it hurts like heaven you might even be aware there's love in these, this storm. There's mercy behind these winds, but this hurts. And God is insisting that I pay attention, insisting that I change. Well, this week, we kind of stumble upon a new element of the story. Uh, Hunter was back there and he said, are we, are we in the fish yet tonight? Well, it's still two weeks away. We're moving slow here. We'll, we'll speed it up soon. We're not in the fish, but what used to be just Jonah and God's drama is now tangling up a lot of other people in it. This is no longer just Jonah's uh, running from God, but there's now victims, anonymous victims of Jonah's running from God. And that's the first thing I said we're going to talk about tonight. What's the reach or the domino effect, the impact of our running uh, from this God? What effect does it have? It seems that the decision to just drift a little bit, just coast a little bit, get serious about God after college or next year when I have a little bit more time or after this relationship either goes somewhere or doesn't. It seems like such an easy, benign, innocent, silly little decision to kind of passively just sit back and not do something. Isn't that the easiest thing in the world to not do something? And it's, and it's easy to begin to think, well, this doesn't really have that big of an impact. Here's how it does. 1980, a town in northern Arkansas, Damascus, Arkansas, a maintenance engineer is nearing the end of his shift. He's on his last project of the day, and uh, he is kind of stepping onto the catwalk where he's working, and he looks down, and he says, oh, shoot, 
I've got the wrong wrench. They, his boss had sent out a memo the week before saying, new protocol, you must use this particular kind of wrench for these maintenance tasks from now on. But it's near the end of the day. His, work, his tools are at least like a 15-minute walk through the complex he's working in. He's like, this tool has always worked. Why would it not work anymore? I'm just going to finish the job and go home for the day. A few minutes into his project, he drops a two-pound socket and it falls 60 feet, and it bounces off the wall of the Titan II intercontinental ballistic missile silo that he was working in, and it punctures the side of the liquid rocket fuel tank. And immediately he hears this horrible hissing sound of tons and tons of liquid rocket fuel beneath a nuclear warhead draining into a silo and filling it up. The fumes from all the gas uh, fill up all of the other spaces of the entire complex, They evacuate everybody. They evacuate towns within miles and miles of this missile silo in the middle of the night. Everybody's worst fear is obviously, this is a nuclear warhead. It's 1980. It's not just that this could blow up. It's that this could could catalyze World War III. Uh, And so uh, this this happens about 3 a.m. They think their worst fear has come to fruition. Here, just an earth-shaking explosion uh, that blows the several-ton lid off the top of the silo and sends a nine-megaton nuclear warhead hurtling a quarter mile through the air, and it lands in someone's front yard. And because it had all these uh, safety mechanisms on it, the nuclear warhead did not explode. All because a man disregarded a memo he got from his boss the week before that said, don't use this wrench anymore, use this wrench. And here's the point of the story. Nobody, none of us, would have ever thought it's that big of a deal. It's an innocent, benign little thing. It's just a wrench. This wrench has always worked. Why is he saying I got to use this wrench? I don't want to walk back to the truck. I'm just going to do this. Well, there was a reason they weren't supposed to use that wrench. The sockets would fall off. And risk this damage. Well, here's, here's the connection to this passage. We often think that, li- that these kind of decisions to continue to kind of coast in this dullness and this distancing between us and God. Or continue to kind of let some rust or corrosion or crust develop on what used to be a sharp-edged love for the Lord. And an awareness of his love for me. Isn't it the easiest, silliest most benign, innocent, non-consequential thing in the world to say, I'm just going to let tomorrow be like today. Nobody thought that a wrench decision could potentially lead to a nuclear apocalypse in the southern United States. And none of us really think or grasp in our minds that continuing our running, whether it's a piece of your life or all of your life, none of us really believe it's going to have devastating consequences, especially for other people. If you're like me, 99% of the time or more, I think of sin as a private thing, especially kind of the kinds of, 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 of mistrust of God that we're talking about. I think of mistrust or unbelief as a private affair. I'm aware of how it affects me, and I'm aware of what it does to God. But I, I can promise you this to my shame— Almost all the time when I am in the throes of temptation and there's a fork in the road, do I go this way or do I trust the goodness of my God and pray for grace? When I'm in that fork in the road, I'm not thinking of y'all. 
but you're affected by my decision there. And I'm not usually thinking of my wife or my kids, and they're even more affected by my decisions there. I think you might be like me, that we don't see this stuff as a public affair that has public domino effects on the people around us, especially the people close around us. But whether it's wrenches and missile silos or tiny little private decisions in the secrecy of your own home or your own mind, there are always public domino effects of these things. And I can promise you this is the mindset of Jonah as well. Imagine the story that we've been looking at the past few weeks from the perspective of these kind of unsuspecting sailors. They're not the cause of this storm or this drama. They're just doing their job. They're professional sailors. They're mariners. They've been doing this route probably a hundred times. They can do it in their sleep. They've encountered storms before, but this storm is different. We don't know why. We don't know if it's the way that the storm came about or the intensity, but Somehow, these kind of non-believing sailors are crying out to their gods and are waking Jonah up saying, pray to your God too, to beg him to spare us. So there's something different about this storm. They know something's up. And so they cast lots, which is kind of the ancient Near Eastern equivalent of a magic eight ball or drawing straws, except with divine intervention behind it. So let's cast the lots or roll the dice and find out who on this ship is responsible for the storm that seems to be chasing us wherever we go. And so they ask uh, Jonah point Blake, tell us on whose account has this evil come upon us? Probably spicier sailor language than that though. Tell us on whose account has this evil come upon us? We didn't do anything. Why is this happening to us? They're not the observers of Jonah's decisions to run from God anymore. They're the victims of Jonah's decision to run from God. As we are the victims of our parents and our friends and our roommates and pastors, we are the victims of other people's decisions, passive decisions to run from God. And other people, our friends, are the victims of our decisions to run from God. It's always public. It always has this domino effect. We are just like Jonah. That was a secret moment. No one had to know that Jonah was called to go to Nineveh. But the storm comes for him. And these people are victims now. And this is uh, what sin does. It shrinks us down to a world of one or maybe perhaps a world of two. You're conscious of God still. I'm running from him. I want to get away from him. I'm going to turn the volume down. But nobody else in this room ever really factors into your decisions of what to do with the unique brand of temptations that are the monkey on your back that you deal with every day. We have a privatized view of our struggles. But let me ask you, exactly who does suffer when we remain content to remain dull? How do your roommates suffer? What do they miss out on? How are their lives a little bit more deprived because of those decisions? How have I been caught up in the the storms of my friends and their decisions and their compromises? How does the girlfriend suffer because of the decision of the boyfriend to kind of use her as a quick fix for his lusts? How do your tight friend group, how do they become the victims of decisions to kind of not fight back against what you're doing with food or what you're doing with sex or what you're doing with pain. Who is the collateral damage 
of what maybe until this passage we thought was just my issue. Who else is caught up in the storm? Whose lives are in danger from these explosions? That's the first point, and it's just kind of observing what's going on in Jonah's biography, that the reach of our running is everybody else in our life. There's a corporate networked effect to all of this. But the, but the main thing that this passage uh, is showing us and it leads to in the weeks ahead, and the main thing I want to talk about is the reach of God's grace. The more that I've read this book and just kind of dwelled in Jonah, it surprised me a lot. It's caught me off guard. This is not the series I was expecting it to be when last December I'm like, let's do Jonah. But the more that I've kind of spent time in here, the more convinced I am that Jonah had never personally experienced the kindness and the compassion and the love of his maker and his God. Or it had been so long since he had that he couldn't even force himself to conjure up a memory of that. It had grown so stale or so dull or so hard. And yet Jonah would have passed any theological test you threw at him. He's a prophet. He is a student of the scriptures. He has studied it his whole life under mentors and other prophets. He is an experienced prophet. He's already gone to many places and preached the word of God. And so Jonah had a head belief in God's mercy, but he had a heart belief that God is merciless. So he had a head belief that God is merciful and a heart belief or an emotional belief that God is actually merciless. Jonah probably wasn't aware of this until God provoked it out of him through this series of events, as he does with us. Jonah was the guy, the, the churched kid who's in the small group, kind of the are you a small group who, who sits there in small group and says, you know, I know the answer to that, but I'm not going to talk. I'm, I want other people to talk, but I know all those answers. Jonah was the guy in the small group that everybody else was quoting because what he said was so eloquent. They're like, whoa, let me get out my moleskin and write that down. That was really helpful, Jonah. Thank you. That's Jonah. An eloquent, beautiful head knowledge that God is merciful. Jonah knew the party line. He knew the scriptures. But in his heart, I don't think he had ever or it had been so long that he had forgotten completely and been gripped by this love and compassion and kindness of God. A God who sees you as you are and doesn't deny the way you are. Doesn't say, you know what? You're a great kid. I've always loved your sense of humor. You know, like, let's just let bygones be bygones. But a God who sees you, all the things you're scared of him seeing, he sees it. And he says, do you want, you want me to shoulder that? I'll take that from you. I'll make us friends again because you can't, but I will. I don't know if Jonah had experienced that. I don't know if some of us have experienced that or perhaps you have. But like Jonah, it's been so long that you can't conjure any memory of that back up. It has no real effect on you, your decisions, your life. We know from chapter four, I don't want to spill the beans and spoil the story, but we know from chapter four, Jonah had a head knowledge that was really sweet. That was really good. It sounded great. Jonah says, after a bunch of stuff happens, uh, he ends up going to Nineveh. He preaches, guess what? They repent. ISIS says, we're wrong. We're wrong. 
Jesus is the Lord. He is God. And we are to love our neighbors and put down our weapons and serve our neighbors, not kill them. And he's blown away by this. And he tells God in this encounter, he says, see, God, that's why I ran and went to Tarshish and did not want to go to Nineveh. I knew you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast mercy and kindness. That's a that's a passage every little Jewish boy and Jewish girl would have known famous like John three sixteen in the Old Testament. Jonah knew it and he quibbles with God about it. But my question is, if Jonah really knew that, if he had been gripped by that, if he had been the victim of that slowness to anger and quickness to, to compassion, it'd be in the, if he had been the victim of God's grace, how is it conceivable that he would have responded with such bitter indignation at the request to go with God to Nineveh to expand the boundaries of his mercy to another people. How is that possible if Jonah had tasted that kindness? Parables all throughout the New Testament of when you have received this grace, it becomes contagious and begins to flow out of you. When you lose sight of it or if you've never tasted God's forgiveness, you can't. It's impossible to give it away to another person. So this is another layer of why Jonah ran. We've covered a lot of answers, and I'm not going to beat that dead horse. He ran because of Nineveh. He ran because he'd lost a sense of the awe of God. He ran because he didn't want to give over editing rights to his story. But I think also, and maybe deepest, he ran because he had not truly tasted the sweetness of God for himself. And that's a big deal. He saw God, and perhaps you do, as quick to anger slow as molasses to show compassion, stingy in steadfast love, merciless, demanding, heartless, and cold. How could you tell this is true if you were one of Jonah's friends? How would you know? How would you be able to look at his life and say, hey, we need to like have an intervention with Jonah. Something's going down. How would you know? What's the evidence in the passage that something's going down with Jonah? Well, number one, he forgot who had called him to go to Nineveh. Think about this. If God had called his prophet to go and preach his compassion and his mercy for sinners, bad people who do bad stuff and have made a wreck of their lives. If he has called Jonah to go and announce, repent. And receive the mercy of God. If he had called Jonah to go do that, why would there not be mercy for Jonah in the journey of going and doing that? Why would God be compassionate to the Ninevites, but harsh with Jonah? And yet that's what Jonah thinks. This is a merciless, quick to anger, flies off the handle, duty-driven God. Why would the grace of God drive the Ninevites to turn from their evil ways and their kind of dead-end lives and to come back to God if he wouldn't still do that for, for Jonah too. And this is, you, you might be beginning to track, this is when we believe the gospel for everybody but ourselves. I, I, when I was an intern, I could sit across the table from any of you and, and plead with you and persuade you of, 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 of the love of God in Christ. That he specializes in saving sinners who've made a wreck of their lives. And I could get back in my car and drive home racked with guilt and a sense of condemnation and self-hatred. Unable at times to believe those things. 
And this is another piece of the evidence. Jonah had no mercy for himself, for the Ninevites, for the non-believing sailors he was on a boat with. I think Jonah thought Nineveh is beyond the reach of God's grace or should be. I know he thought the sailors were or should be beyond the reach of God's grace. And the ironic thing is I really do think he thought he had run past the reach of God's grace. I really do think he, he thought he blew it so badly that there was no hope for him. Jonah never answers one of the questions the sailors ask him. They say, who are you? Who are your people? Where are you from? What is your occupation? He answers all of their questions except for one, which is in Hebrew. What is your mission? What are you about? What are you preoccupied with? What drives your life? What do you do? And he never tells them, I'm a prophet. I think he couldn't get the words out of his mouth. He had blown it. I'm not a prophet. I'm a cast. I'm a, I'm a spiritual castaway. I'm adrift in the sea. I had my moment and I missed it. I did something that is unforgivable. I did something that I can never get over as we have all dealt with ourselves the same way. Jonah will not tell them that he's a prophet for this God. He'll say, I'm a Hebrew. He'll say, I know the God, the Lord who made land and sea, but he will not own up and say, I'm a prophet. I think he thought that ship had sailed, pun intended, and he was not on it. And he was on the wrong ship and his life was heading over a cliff, which is where he says at the very end, throw me into the sea. In a sense, my life is over. There's no future for me anymore. There's no next chapter for me and God after what I've done. My response, my drifting, my running. There is no chapter two. This is it. Throw me into the sea. Do you resonate with that? How else do we know? Of all the people on the boat, Jonah's the one who doesn't pray to his God. All of the sailors did. We talked about that last night. Their gods did not exist. But they were, pray, they were crying out to something bigger than themselves. And they eventually cry out to the God of the Bible, the Lord. Jonah never utters a prayer. They'll even come to him and they'll say, point blank, Jonah, cry out to your God in the hope that he might spare us. He might give us a thought and save us from this calamity. And Jonah never can, can get the words out of his mouth. I don't think he expects any grace from God anymore. I think he expects anger and wrath and punishment and to be abandoned because of what he's done. And I think we do too. Am I right? I understand this passage better because of the conversations I've had in the past two weeks with us. This is how we think, friends. We think we've hit dead ends. We think there's no more chapter two coming. We think it's all over. Throw me into the sea. Jonah expects justice. Jonah expects fairness. Jonah expects punishment. Jonah does not expect mercy, and so Jonah doesn't pray for mercy. I've been interested in this the whole time, this comparing contrast between Jonah and all the other prophets, all the other people who heard hard words from God like this, which, could, which in our context could sound like, break up with that guy. You're only, look, I've told you, you can't tie, you can't yoke yourself to someone who's on a different trajectory. He's not a believer. You got to break up with him. And it's a hard word from God. Or 
Seek reconciliation with your mom. It's a hard word from God. We don't see anything good coming out of that. We're tempted to run. We don't know how to respond. But there's all these hard words of God that meet men and women throughout the scriptures. And I just very briefly want to run through and say, and just to see the alternatives. How could we respond differently than this reflexive running? Clearing out our bank accounts and financing our escape from God. Abraham received a really hard word from God in Genesis 17. And he responds to God and he says, I'm almost 100 years old. How can I become a father? And my wife is 90. How can she have a child? Abram doesn't run. Abram interacts. He wrestles with God and he says, wait a minute. I don't understand how this works out. How does God respond? Sarah, your wife shall bear you a son, Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him. Grace is how God responds. Moses receives a hard word from God, a hard call to do something he can't wrap his head around. And he responds to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? How does God respond? Does he slap him across the face and say, who are you to ask me questions? Go. He says, Moses, I'll be with you. I'm going with you to talk to Pharaoh. And he responds with compassion. Isaiah, we've talked about this. Woe is me. I'm, a, I'm ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips. How does God respond to him? He says, behold, I have touched your lips and your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Isaiah didn't know what to do with the difficult call of God on his life. And God responds by saying, look, I've atoned for your sins. You're no longer a man of unclean lips. You are clean. And you go now and tell the world about me. Jeremiah talks to God in desperation. Oh, sovereign Lord, I don't know how to speak. I'm too young. How does God respond? Don't be afraid, Jeremiah, for I am with you to deliver you, and I have put my words in your mouth. Kindness. They all heard difficult words from God. They all had that moment of decision. Do I give over editing rights to my story? Do I cede veto power to God? Do I trust him and say he alone can breathe life into my life and bring resurrection where I'm dead? Or do I take the money and run like Jonah does? With Jonah, there is no dialogue with God. There is no even wrestling with God, but I don't understand God. There is no, but I'm too young or I'm. Jonah could have dropped to his knees and said, Father, really? I don't know what to do with this. I'm terrified of the words you just spoke to me. I don't know what it's going to do. If, if I embrace Christianity in my dad, have you met my dad? He's going to kick me out of the house. He's going to cut me off financially. And you have that moment of decision. And we have those moments of decision. Jonah doesn't have a dialogue with God about that. He has a monologue with himself. And he has no resources. And so he runs. The last thing I want to talk about, the last just tidbit of this, is, is this weird ironic side effect of when you believe that you are beyond the reach of God's grace you will start to believe that so are other people. And it'll be specific people. It'll be people that you or I have classified as unredeemable, unreachable. If you grew up in the church, it's probably cleaner or, or more black and white categories. Like those people over there, there's no, those guys on my hall, I'm not going to invite them to RUF or to church. I'm not going to talk to them about Jesus. They're unredeemable. We don't say that. We believe it. There's no way they'll repent. 
There's no way they're interested in this God. And we have classified them as unredeemable. My question is, have you also classified yourself on the darker days of your life as unredeemable and out of the reach of God's grace? How have we become so schooled in receiving bitterness from God and indifference from God unless we've experienced it ourselves? I think that is why we write off our saltier friends or the saltier people groups whose sin or running from God might be a little higher caliber than what we're used to. We say Ninevites never. This group of people, this organization, these sorority sisters, these hallmates, this sibling never. We write them off because oftentimes we're like Jonah. We've even written ourselves off. And we think that the boundaries of God's mercy are very tight, very constricted. It's a gated community and only beautiful people make it in. And so we, we, we have we, the head knowledge that God is merciful and our hearts deeply believe he's merciless. And that's a very hard burden to bear and a very bitter burden to bear. We often reverse what Jerry Bridges says. Our worst days are never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. And your best days are never so good that you're beyond the need of God's grace. And we say oftentimes I am in self-righteousness. I'm beyond the need of God's grace. I've arrived. I've made it. I don't struggle with that anymore. Or on the worst days, we say I'm beyond the reach of God's grace. Throw me into the heart of the sea. There's no hope for me. I'm not even going to tell people what I used to do. There's no hope of that ever being revitalized. I want to end with this to startle us and to surprise us because the gospel, if it's told right, is always surprising. It always sneaks in the back door and jumps out and surprises you. It's never this boring old person walking down the front sidewalk and you say, here comes the gospel. Here comes the good news. It is subversive. It is dynamic. It is energetic. It is agile. And before you know it, it's sitting on your couch. And it surprises you. Frederick Buechner, a favorite author of mine, says, God is the comic shepherd who gets more a kick out of that one lost sheep once he finds it again than out of the 99 who had the good sense not to get lost in the first place. God is the eccentric host who, when the country club crowd all turned out to have better things to do than to come live it up with him, goes out into the skid rows and the soup kitchens and the charity wards, and brings home a freak show. The man with no legs who sells shoelaces at the corner. The old woman in the moth-eaten fur coat who makes her daily rounds of the garbage cans. The old wino with his pint in a brown paper bag. The pusher, the whore, the village idiot who stands at the blinker light waving his hand as the cars go by. They are seated at the head table in the great hall. The candles are all lit and the champagne glasses are filled. And at the signal from the host, the musicians in the gallery strike up amazing grace. Who do you think are included in the bounds and the boundaries of God's saving mercy? Have you written yourself outside of the boundaries? Are there friends of yours that you have most certainly written off as unredeemable, unreachable? Amazing grace is amazing because it does something we could never do, which is transform these people back into the image of God, back into people who, like David, after his great fall and his worst day ever, 
become a man after God's own heart. David used to be a man who wanted to get the heck away from God in his heart. That's what the gospel does. The chase began in heaven. Jesus does not count equality with God something to be grasped, but makes himself nothing, leaving heaven to come here, taking on the form of a servant and dying, even the death on a cross, to capture you, to bring you back, to chase you, and to persuade you once again that he is a friend of sinners, even runners. The story continues next week. Let's pray. Jesus, persuade us, wrestle with us, overpower us, tackle us as we run. And if there are friends of mine in the room who maybe are new to this series in Jonah or have been here all three weeks but still cannot put their finger on a place in their lives where they have turned the volume of your voice down, where they're running from you, would you be kind enough to put your finger in that place and to press And to draw attention to it. That we might come into the light. That we might confess and agree with what you see. And that we might enter into your joy again. Through repentance and faith. We ask this in your name. Amen.